Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. As it's the 60th year, we're ramping up our trips down the legendary Coronation Street. After all, it is the world's longest-running drama serial, and we think it deserves a bit of special treatment in its landmark year. And so today, we're going right back to the beginning as we meet a Coronation Street original. He was in the very first episode in 1960 and became a young star and household name overnight. Yes, we've been talking to none other than Philip Lowry, who played the rather dashing but somewhat wayward Dennis Tanner, Elsie's son. The following interview was recorded during the UK lockdown in 2020 amidst some challenging technical issues. Uh, However, I urge you to stick with it as things improve later on. I've been working on my own resume today and I've actually been working as an actor for 70 years, I've realised this year. So I do remember 60 years ago. So tell us a bit about the build up to Corrie. First of all, you know, when did you get to hear about it? First of all, you know, when, how did well, you find I, out about it? I had an agent in those days, he, um, an agent who eventually retired. He's not, of course, my current agent, called Derek Marr. And he phoned me one day and he said, Granada Television are doing six weeks, it was twice a week, a series about a Manchester street. You're from Manchester, are you, Philip? I said, yes, of course I am. He said, well, they want genuine Manchester people. I put your name up for a character called Dennis Tanner. And when I got the script, because you had to do a screen test, and when I got the script, I was amazed, because the script of episode one was by Tony Warren, who created the show, of course, and it was a brilliant script. And I thought, if I could get this job, it would it would be, you know, the peak of my life in a way, even though I was only just starting out as a television actor. I was one of two people. Oh, they interviewed 70 boys, 70 actors, and they chose two of us, Kenneth Farrington and myself, to do a camera test. And I met Ken at the day when we did the camera test, I got the part of Dennis, and he was given the part of Billy Walker, who was uh, the son of uh, the people who ran the Rovers' return. So I think if I didn't get Dennis, I would have got Billy Walker anyway, <laughs> but I was glad to get Dennis. And I, I did a reading, first of all, with, the, with Josie Scott, who was the head of the casting department, and then I had to go up to Manchester for the camera test, which took two days. I did the camera test. I, I, I came straight home on the train. I got into my flat in Islington in those days. And the telephone was ringing. And it was my agent. And he said, you've got the part. You've got to go straight back up to Manchester. You start on Monday. This was like on the Thursday or the Friday. So it was all a bit of a, you know, an exciting time going on. So, yes, I was very, very lucky to get that part. Fantastic. Well, we'll talk a bit more about Corrie in a moment. But just remind us what you'd done before Coronation Street. Oh, right. Well, I, I, when I was 17, I went to drama school. I went to RADA because I'm, I'm, you know, I went from grammar school in Manchester to RADA. I did a year. Of it, the, the, the RADA course was two years. And boys in those days had to do national service. So you would separate the the course at RADA by the National Service. So I did one year, 
done two years in the army, then I came out at the age of 21, went back to RADA and did another year, and left at the age of 22, having finished my RADA course, and I immediately went straight into, I, I, I was so lucky when I was so young, I immediately went straight into a play at the Garrick Theatre in London with Margaret Rutherford and Peggy Mount. It was called Farewell, Farewell, Eugene. And I played a young lad who lived in the flat upstairs. And I had to dance knees at Mother Brown every <laughs> performance with Margaret Rutherford, which the audiences absolutely adored, of course. And I, I loved her. She was wonderful to me, as was Peggy Mount. They were both so nice. Uh, from there, that was about a nine-month engagement. And then when that play finished, the company manager, a lady called Mary Lynn, said to me, the same company, H.M. Tennant, are doing another play, and there's a part in it for you, and I'm going to suggest you to the director, who was Peter Brook, the famous Peter Brook, and it was a play called The Visit by the German Frederick Durenmatt, and it was starring the American actors, Alfred Lunt and his wife, Lynn Fontaine, and I played Alfred Lunt's son. I guess I got that part, and I played Alfred Lunt's son, uh, Carl, for about six or seven months or so. That finished in, I think it was in August, and that was when my then agent said, they're doing this series called Florizel Street up at Granada, and I've put your name up for it. So that was the chronology. I did two, I did my year, years at RADA, then two plays in the West End, and then went straight into Coronation Street. I was very fortunate indeed. Indeed, and you're very fortunate, as you say, to work with uh, Margaret Rutherford and also with Peggy Mount. I mean, Peggy Mount is oh, a yes. brilliant actress. I, I, I did a radio series later, um, a, a, a BBC radio series, and, and Peggy was in that as well, so I worked twice with Peggy. She, she's, somebody, yes. she, uh, she's, she's somebody I remember quite a bit from growing up. You know, she's a fantastic character yes. actress. But in a way, she's, she's not as celebrated as she should be, I think. Uh, I mean, she was famous for her huge voice. And she, she, could, she could demolish a building with her voice. Um, <laughs> the thing I remember in, it was a thing called Ladies, Ladies Who Do, it was called. And it was all about... Oh, I don't remember that. It, oh. was, <laughs> it was all about her... She, she basically was... Um, there was a series of women who basically used to go, go around fa fairly rich, well-to-do people's houses cleaning, basically. Oh, really? Um, oh, and, I don't remember that. And what happened mm. was, what happened was, I don't know exactly what happened, but basically they ended up winning a load of money on the, on, on the horses or something. And they went from being ladies who do to ladies who, you know, sort of did lunch <laughs> and dined and all the rest of it. It was very good, very good. So back to Coronation Street then. Obviously, fantastic to get the part. Apart from you know, Mr. Farrington, you, you, you met in the um, when you were doing the auditions. Did you know who you might be working with? No, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody at all. I'd just done the two plays in the West End and, 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 and my time at RADA and in the army. After I got the part, I went back to Manchester to do the first day of rehearsal, and I was incredibly nervous because uh, I. On, te on television, I'd hardly ever spoken. I, 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 was a bit of, I was a bit like a glorified extra in one or two series like Dixon of Doc Green. I, I think I had a line in Dixon of Doc Green, but that was about it. And I got this amazing part that I realized later when I got friendly with Tony Warren that he'd written for himself. 
and he wanted to play the part, but Granada wouldn't let him. They said, no, your job is to write. You can't do both. So I got the part, and the script was astonishing. And I was sitting there in rehearsal, the first day of rehearsal, quite nervous, not knowing a soul, and in through the double doors, into the rehearsal, came this very beautiful, I mean, stunningly beautiful young woman, who came straight up to me and said, you're Philip. I said, yes. She said, I'm Anne. I'm playing Linda, your sister. And that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship with my friend Anne Cunningham, who lives with her family down the road here in Putney. <laughs> Fabulous. So when did you first set eyes on Pat Phoenix? That day, that same day. That same day. Because after Anne came into the rehearsal room, in came this big lady... I mean, and she was big in those days, and she had a, a green tweed, Irish tweed, two-piece suit on, sort of, well, it was, I think, it was December, yes, so, you know, she was properly dressed, but it was rather garish, and she was blousy and over the top, you know, and that, that, that was Pat, but I mean, you know, she and I had a wonderful relationship as mother and son, I mean, it was just, it was just terrific working with her. Indeed. Now, just remind people um, what Dennis Tanner was supposed to be. He was a bit of a bit of a lad, wasn't oh, he? Well, he was a layabout, really. He'd been in Borstal. Uh, before the show began, his backstory was that he'd been in and out of Borstal for pinching things. You know, he was always pinching things out of his mother's purse, but he must have pinched something quite serious for him to be put into Borstal. So he, he got a big chip on his shoulder, and uh, he was in and out of jobs all the time and, and sponging off his mother and living at home. Uh, that was it until he got a permanent job the producers invented for me. And that, that was sort of being dog's body in a nightclub. And uh, this suited Dennis Tanner down to the ground because he he always wanted to be part of show business and, and being Dog's Bonnie in the nightclub was the nearest thing he could, he could get to it, really. And it started off, didn't it? Your, well, I think your fir- first scene was a bit of an argument with your mother, wasn't it, basically? Yes, Riley? coming down the stairs. And, of course, it was live. The, 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 the first episode went out live. And, of course, I'd never done television. I'd, I'd done the one line in Dixon of Doc Green, but that was a, on film. So this was live television, and I remember standing at the top of the staircase in the studio, and I had to run down the stairs and be chased by Pat with half, he said, you've pinched half a crown out of my purse, sort of thing. And I remember the the floor manager, who was called Robin McIntyre, said, right, settle down, and this was live, settle down studios, 10 seconds, 9, and he counted down, and I thought, my God, my God, you know, there are people watching this. And I was so, I couldn't, I was so nervous. I was rigid with fear, absolutely rigid. And what I did, I, I, I ran down the stairs I should, and I was supposed to hit a mark on the studio floor so the camera could focus on me. And I just didn't quite hit the mark properly. But, uh, you know, that was the first mistake I made. I, I never made another mistake like that after that. Well, we didn't know. We didn't. Those of us looking back, you, you can't tell that. You don't. You, you don't know that, uh, that you didn't hit that mark. Now, Dennis was a bit of a. Obviously, he was a bit of a. You know, a layabout, as you say. And he, yes. he, in very much in contrast to Ken's character, wasn't it? It was sort of the the, the oh, polar absolutely. opposites, really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some confusion 
because I'd seen on the internet or something that I, that I auditioned firstly for the part of Kenneth Barlow. This never happened. I was never considered for Ken because Bill Roach had already been cast. You know, I was never considered for Ken Barlow. But yes, it, Ken Barlow was the chap who'd been to university. He was the steady, good citizen type type of person. And I was the bad citizen type of person. It's always best to play the baddie, I think. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now, obviously, that was Friday. The what was it? The, was it the sixth of uh, December, nineteen sixty? I think it was, or yes, the ninth. Yes, the ninth. Right. The ninth of December. That was it. The ninth of December, nineteen sixty. Well, we started rehearsal the fifth of December, which was the Monday. Right. And I think on the Tuesday, Harry Kershaw, who was the producer, came to the cast and said, "We're going out live on Mon on on Friday." I mean, that was the first we knew that we were actually going out and it was to be live, not recorded. And the second episode was done after the live broadcast. We then had a quarter of an hour turnaround and we did the second episode and that was filmed. Right. And right. so from then on, they always did a... A live broadcast and then a film broadcast. Okay, okay. So it's twice a week on a Friday. What, what other day did yeah. you go out? What other Friday days? and a Monday, I think. A Friday and a Monday, right? Okay. Because um, of course it changed over the years and became Monday and Wednesday. Oh, yeah, and all yeah, 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 yeah. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Space. Not so long ago. In a time of intergalactic turmoil, the peaceful tyranny of the Galactic Empire is forever being threatened by evil anarchist forces. What was that? Morning. Anarchist forces have launched a surprise attack on a Sun Crusher's outer defence craft. Only the Sun Crusher space station can bring order back to the Empire. This is not a drill, although they probably are using drills. And only one man and one robot have the administration skills to keep bureaucracy burning bright. You are so anal. I don't be ridiculous, Brack. I don't even have an anus. That's an exhaust port. Meet Brack Nubar. That's my payslip, isn't it? It's completely blank. And X769C. My gang homeboat has been engaged and my suicide mission protocols are on standby. Thrill as they take on giant brides and evil geniuses. She's beautiful. Really? She looks like a giant calculator on steroids. Gasp as they look death squarely in the face and then run away. Down a garbage chute. <laughs> I'm not going down <laughs> Written and performed by Ian McNess and Richard Delafield. Stop stroking yourself. It creeps me out. <clears throat> you don't get here like this. Kill me now, just get it over with. Well, I do have this letter. Creep space. You okay now? Yes. So I can stop holding your hand? Yes. Coming soon to Distinct Comedy. He's a household name. Hello? Mr. John Sim. My gosh, I'm recording from my airing cupboard. Jesus. Yeah. New to Distinct Nostalgia. Hello, is that Monsieur Joe Calzaghi? It is. What tea bags do you buy, Joe? Tetley's, mate. See, if Tetley's get older, this podcast will go nuts. Joe Calzaghi <laughs> is the Tetley's tea drinker. Join Queer as Folk star Craig Kelly. 
as he reminisces with friends from the worlds of showbiz and sport. Hello? Is that Mr Terry Hall? Uh, yes, it is. Hi, Craig. <laughs> I was about ten, and I didn't know yeah. what a political song was. Ghost Town, I knew that that was. And yeah. so you connected with a ten-year-old. You know, the idea of, has always been with me, you communicate, this is your voice, you express your feelings, and to recognise that other people feel this too is a great thing, really. Kelly's Heroes. God, that was amazing. Every Tuesday until September 1st. I will speak to you anon. And, and of course, it wasn't meant to last very long, was it? Certainly, my, my contract was for 12 episodes originally. And then after about a week, the show was... A week or two, the show was so popular, they decided to extend the contract and we uh, and we all signed a, a longer contract for about, about six, six months, months I think but, but originally it was just a short series because Tony had only written a couple of episodes you know he'd only written a couple and then when they decided to extend the contract they had to bring in some new writers because they I remember they said to Tony Look, you can't write everything. You, 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 you sort of grind yourself into the ground. So they brought in wonderful people like Harry Kershaw and Jack Rosenthal to, to, um, to write more episodes. Now, obviously, you were there working with Pat Phoenix, who was a larger-than-life yeah. character. But yeah. there were other larger-than-life characters in the programme. There was Doris Speed and, of course, there was Violet oh, Carson well, and others. Well, Doris was my very favourite person. Doris more than anybody, was a real theatre person. I mean, she worked a lot on radio, Radio Manchester, but she absolutely loved the theatre, and she encouraged me personally to go and do more theatre. And I said to Cecil Bernstein, Sydney's brother, Cecil was in charge of the, the running of Coronation Street, can I have permission to go and do a play in the theatre? And he said, yes, as long as it's a good play. <laughs> and my agent got me a job working for Jonathan Miller at Chichester Festival Theatre in a Chekhov play. And as soon as I told Cecil, he said, yes, of course, yes, of course, you can have three months off or whatever. And my wife and I will come and see you. And of course, they did because they lived near Chichester. So that was, that was really nice. So... I was allowed to go out and do the theatre that I really wanted to do. And uh, Doris came all the way to Chichester to see me. And when I played Romeo at Ludlow Castle, she came to Ludlow. She was a wonderful theatre person. Uh, she she, she, she travelled around just going to theatres. She, she just loved plays, really, yeah. And how much like their on-screen characters were they in real life, people like Violet Carson? Well, Doris was my very favourite person, and Violet, Violet Carson was also a great favourite of mine. She was very, very kind to me. Violet knew a great deal about gardening. She was a great gardener. And when I bought my first house, which was in Northamptonshire, I realised after I bought the house that I got two acres of garden. And I didn't know, I'd, I'd never done any gardening in my life. And it was Violet who took me on one side and said, you need some tulips here and you need some roses there. And she planned the whole garden for me. It was, it was, it was terrific. So I got, on, I got on very well with all those wonderful ladies like Margot Bryant and Lynn Carroll. I, they were all such characters. Margot was an amazing character, you know. Margaret, who played Minnie Caldwell, she was such a lovely woman. We'll be back after a quick break.
But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying Oh, yeah, I'm trying I'm trying I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We going to have this like me and my man like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play we play with this shit right now. I got we play with this shit right now for for I got Don't play with it. Take that shit seriously. And she'd been in lots of things beforehand, hasn't she? She'd been she around had, for a long she, time. She'd been an actress since she was a young girl. And when she came into Coronation Street, she was in her 60s, of course. I mean, so she had a... And her sister was even more famous. She had a sister who died young, who, when Fred and Adele Astaire came over from America to do a musical, Margot's sister... Joan, I think she was called Joan, Margot's sister was Adele Astaire's understudy. Then when Adele Astaire married an Irish peer, um, Margot's sister took over the part and danced with Fred Astaire. So she had a great theatrical background. And, and soon into your part, you yes. were, you know, you, you, were, you became a, you know, because you were one of the younger characters in it. So and yes, there, were, yes. there weren't very many programmes on TV that had young characters that young people could identify with to an extent. And and during that period that you were on Coronation Street, you had some fantastic storylines, didn't you? Well, the story, of course, I had, I had wonderful scripts and I had wonderful storylines. We were asked by Harry Kershaw, who was the producer at the time, we were asked to suggest storylines, not only for ourselves, our own characters, but for other characters. And I remember... Um, suggesting one or two storylines for Annie Walker, which, um, which were accepted. We didn't, get, we didn't get paid for our ideas. But, you know, it was a great community because all the actors were, you know, there were 13 of us permanent actors, and all the actors and the directors and the producers, we all worked together. It was a, a, a wonderful community. I don't think that happens anymore. I mean, things have got so formal these days. You... You do a television play these days, you never see the producer at all because they sit in their office and, you know, judging you from on, on monitors. <laughs> what do you remember about the setup at Granada? Because, of course, it changed over the years. And, of course, the outside scenes were inside, weren't they? They were done inside at that particular point. Tell us a bit about the studios and things and what it all, you know, how it all uh, worked. Yeah. Well, well, everything, everything was, was done in the studio, as you just said. Even the... In the road, they painted the cobbles on the studio floor and they painted a curb for the pavement and you had to remember to do as little hop as you stepped up onto the curb, although it was completely flat, it was all painted onto the studio floor. But then, when you know the show became so popular and they decided to continue with the show, so then they built the outside. You know, they built the whole of Coronation Street outside with, with the corner shop and the pub and everything. And uh, when you went in through the door on the outside set, there was nothing. You went in through a door and there was, there was no staircase or anything. It was just a piece of scenery, really. Now, it, it became very successful quite quickly. How did that sort of make you feel? Did you, did, were you suddenly recognised by everybody on the street? What was it like? Well, I actually hated it. 
I mean, some people, some of, some of the cast, just like Pat, Pat absolutely loved being recognised. She was very good with the public. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a reserved, shy person. And uh, I, I was astonished. And, of course, what happened with me, because I was a bit of a bad lad, some women would have slapped me across the face in the street, you know, say, don't speak to your mother like that, which was fairly unpleasant. Yes, I got a few slaps across the face, yeah. Uh, and did you become a bit, of a, a bit of a sex symbol as well for a while, do you think? <laughs> if only, if only. Well, yeah, I did get a lot of letters. You know, I, I, suppose, I suppose I might have been a teenage... I suppose I might have been... I, I didn't think anything of it. Well, uh, rather than being a sex symbol, you're a bit of a heartthrob, is what we'll say, shall we? Well, I, well, <laughs> I, I suppose... I mean, the real heartthrob was Bill Roach, you know. He was even in black and white television. I mean, Bill, when he was young, had wonderful chestnut-coloured hair. One, one, wonderful hair and big blue eyes. I mean, he... He was made for colour television. Um, but even in black and white, he was a very, very handsome man. When you look back at those black and white images of the, yes. of the original series, I mean, they, they've, they've really stood the test of time, haven't they? You know, when you have people like Tony, Warren, and Jack Rosenthal, and some of the others, you know, writing for Adele Rose, uh, with the first woman writer we had, uh, they, they wrote wonderful scripts. And, of course, they were all real northern people. So they all knew about northern idioms and things like that. That's why it was so true. Indeed. I, I actually spoke to John Finch the other day, who was one of the writers. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, John was a good, very good writer. Yeah, and he, he, he went on to create Family at War as well, if I remember rightly. Yes, that's right. Yes. Well, I, you know, that sort of coterie of young writers that they had, Jack and John, they, they were... It, all in a kind of stable that was run by Harry Kershaw. And, and uh, they were all highly talented people. So did you get on with the other youngsters on the show? Did oh, you... all of them. Yeah. We were, we were Christine Hargreaves, bless her, who died young, you know, Christine died young. Christine Hargreaves and I were at RADA together, not in the same class, but we were there at the same time. And Anne Cunningham and I... Anne, Anne and her family lived just down the road from me here in London. And we were all such great friends, and we would socialise together. Graham Haberfield was a great man, was a really lovely, a very friendly man, and very good to me. I was very, very fond of him. And Alan Rothwell, we would all go out together. We all, you know, we, we the young ones in the show, we, we really bonded. It, it, was, uh, it was a very, very nice time indeed. And Manchester, of course, was very different back then, wasn't it? I presume there wasn't all the various places you could go. So how did you how did you all socialise back in those days? Well, I mean, we all learnt to drive and we all got cars and things. And about 20 miles south of Manchester is Cheshire. And there were some lovely restaurants and villages in Cheshire. So that's what we would do. I, I think, yes, it was on a Thursday evening after... The, the um, rehearsal in the studio stopped at 7 o'clock or maybe 6 o'clock and then we would get in our cars and we'd go to a restaurant in Cheshire and all have a nice meal together, which was very, very nice. And sometimes we'd go with, with the ones who liked classical music, we'd go to the Halle concerts some evenings together. 
which, which wasn't very far from the studios, of course. No, no just, just up the road, literally. Yeah. You could, you could walk there, yeah. 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 Did, you, did, you ever, did you ever pop into the Midland Hotel as well? That was quite a popular place, oh, wasn't it? Oh, dear, yes. <laughs> now you reminded me. <laughs> I used to take Doris to dinner, and sometimes Margot Bryant, who played Minnie Caldwell, I used to take them to dinner at the Midland Hotel. And the, the Metro D was a very fat waiter. He was a lovely guy, and I had forgotten his name. He was very camp, very fat, and of course he loved having these two ladies. And we used to have lovely, lovely meals together, you know, just, just great fun, just, you know, laughing all the time. Yes, it was, it was a, a really, really, really happy, happy time. time. And of course, you, you could afford it in those days. <laughs> and of course, the, the Midland Hotel became quite popular with the... The, with, the, with the actors, because several of the older stars used to stay there, didn't they? And people like Jack well, Howarth and people like that. They didn't at first. They didn't at first. When, when I'm talking about the very early days, and nobody could afford to stay at the Midland. But I believe after that, I think Granada took out some kind of deal with the Midland Hotel. And yes, and actors of good standing could stay there, yeah. But most actors stayed in digs or in a hotel or something, you know, in, in places like Didsbury or... Altrincham or somewhere like that. What did you do then when you came to Manchester? Did you stay in digs in Manchester or family or...? Yeah, well, when I got the part, I went to stay with my parents and they lived in, in the north of Manchester in a place called Stone Clough, which is near Farnworth, because my father worked in the paper mill, which was in Stone Clough. So I stayed for about six months or so with my parents and then my contract was extended and I remember I had a flat in London because I'd been to drama school and I'd, I'd got this flat in London, uh, which I went to at weekends. And I said to my mother, I think I'm going to get a flat in Manchester. And she said, yes, you must, you know, you must, you must do your own thing. You must, you know, she, she said it's restrictive living with us kind of thing. So I, I rented a little cottage in Didsbury in Manchester, which was a very, very nice old Victorian two-up, two-down cottage. And I was—I lived there for about three years. I was very happy there. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Take 23. Distinct Comedy presents... Oh, hello. I'm uh, I'm Jolien Karp. I'm, uh, I'm doing a voiceover. Oh, hello. Experience a day in the life of voiceover guy. Take 13. I'm playing a pirate. Are you sure you're in the right place? Written and performed by Jonathan Kidd. Take 24. Aha! Splice the main brace, me hearties. Get on down to Captain Jacob's boat supplies. Sail is now on. 
get it? Oh, good. Let's treat that one as a run-through. Aha! Available now on the Distinct Comedy Podcast. Okay, then. Can we do a series of less piratical wild ahas in threes and we'll splice them on? That okay, Paul? The trials and tribulations of a life spent in voiceover. Sorry, I only have two lemon with honey. I'd like my coffee. I shall scream without a coffee. New and original comedy. Softer. Aha! Well, actually, on reflection, I'm not happy with them. I like what we had, all rough and piratey. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or I might have to give you a black spot. That was blood out of a stone. Won't use him again. During the period that you were in Coronation Street, obviously the yeah. programme evolved and changed and yeah. new people came in. And I think, yeah. you know, you got Gene Alexander emerging with uh, Bernard Hewins, you know, the uh, yeah. doing the Ogdens yeah. and whatever yeah. and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Tell us a bit about that. You know, what was it like having new people appear after oh, you being... Oh, it was terrific. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it, it was... Re- I mean, I didn't get on with Bernard Hewins, I have to say. I know he he did, for some reason he took against me. He didn't like me, and Jean uh, Alexander I absolutely adored. But uh, and she adored. She called him Bunny. She adored Bernard Ewins. He was the only person I I really and I don't know why. I think he took. A, I just don't think he liked me anyway. Um, but you know it was it was wonderful having all these special people coming in and. And because I knew people in the casting department and I got friendly with them, they would tell me the background of... Well, I remember when Jean Alexander came into the show and the casting director, who was called Roy Roberts, Roy said that he used to be an actor and he'd worked with Jean at York Rep. And he said, this wonderful actress is coming into the show. And there she, and she, she was a wonderful actress and an absolutely adorable person. So Arthur Lowe was in the programme for a while, wasn't oh, he? Oh, dear Arthur. Well, Arthur was a genius. He was a genius comic actor. And what a privilege it was for me as a young actor. And the other young women, people like Graham Haberfield, would say the same thing. Just watch Arthur rehearse, because it's an object lesson in itself. And he, you know, he was a, he was a very fine actor indeed. And then after that, he went into Dad's Army, and you know, but it, but watching him play Mr. Swindley in rehearsal with Eileen Derbyshire as Miss Nugent, the two of them together it was was a, just a lesson in comic acting. Now Eileen Derbyshire. Very lucky to have people like that. Eileen Derbyshire. Obviously, people always talk about Bill Roach. I, I absolutely adore Eileen Derbyshire. <laughs> she is. She is a very, very special person. People always talk about Bill uh, having been there from the beginning, of course, Bill Roach. Yeah. But Eileen was, was there almost from the beginning, wasn't she? Was She was there she from the... came in after about eight or ten weeks. She wasn't there from episode one. Now, you were in the programme for eight years, if I remember rightly. Yeah, um, yeah. And just remind us how your departure came about. I always said, I've quoted this several times, I felt like a little mouse running around a, a velvet padded wheel. I always, you know, I, I felt too comfortable. And I thought, I'm not developing as an actor just playing this one part, although it was a wonderful part to play. I want to play different roles. In fiction, in the script, I, I, you know, it's so long ago, I can't remember. It says here that Dennis is left to his own devices in 1967 when Elsie marries Steve Tanner. 
He takes oh, in right. he yes, takes in yes. he takes in various lodgers and and acts and is when he returns to show business. Of course, yes, yes, of course, you know more than me. <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, that's right. He was in this club. That's right. He 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 always wanted to be a performer, but he was never really good enough. So he did backstage work in clubs. That was it. That was it. Yes. So what happened was you had some wild parties apparently, and you were, you were evicted, and you went then went to live in London. Basically, that was oh, that, that's uh, what happened uh, to Dennis. Oh, oh that's what, oh, <laughs> it's so long ago. But eventually, you married Jenny Sutton and ended up in Bristol. Jenny Sutton, played by Mitzi Rogers. Jenny Sutton, that's right, played by Mitzi. Yes. <laughs> Mitzi went to live in Malta with her husband. When you eventually came back to Corrie many, many years later... It was a gap of 43 years. 40... Yeah. <laughs> the re... They teamed you up, basically, with Barbara Knox uh, yeah. as Rita. But do you, remember... do you remember Barbara being in the show briefly in the 60s as well? Oh, I do. Yes, she came in as my girlfriend in The Rover's Return. We... And I had to sneak her into Elsie Tanner's bed. <laughs> and the ceiling fell in. That's right. But Barbara and I go back a long way, and she, what, what, a, what a fine actress she is. I don't think she often gets the credit for how brilliant she is. You know, I used to love playing scenes with Barbara. Those, sometimes you play a scene with her, and those green eyes would flash at you, and it was, oh, gosh. She's, she's a very special person who was very, very fond of Barbara, and we, we, we did work well together. And, and then when Phil Collinson brought me back into the show, and he was the producer, he said, I want you, I want Dennis Tanner to marry you know, the Barbara Knox character. Yeah, Rita. Rita. Did, you have, did you have to be persuaded to re... I mean, going back after 40-odd years is a big thing, isn't it? Well, to tell you the truth, it was my agent who wanted me to go back, because agents get commission from your salary. I w if I wasn't earning any money, they weren't getting any commission. So he approached Granada and suggested that I come back into the show, and the producers liked it, and uh, that was Phil Collinson. The producers liked the idea and ran it, and that's how I went back into the show. I was also, I had been out of work for about a year or so, so I, you know, I wanted to go back, in fact. I wanted to... I wanted to work. I've always, I've always liked working, and I wanted to work. And, and it, you know, it, it was a happy time going back. But going back to Coronation Street so many years later, knowing that soap today, ser you know, drama serials today, are a very different beast, i.e. there's that many more episodes and all the rest of yeah. it, was that quite daunting? Um, no. No. Um, what was daunting was getting a script which you didn't think was really your character. Because, because of the gap, there were a lot of new writers, of course, and they didn't know how to write for Dennis. And I suppose I expected that another Jack Rosenthal would come along or another Tony Warren would come. I mean, Tony did write the odd script, but I, I, I expected that they would write Dennis as he used to be. But, of course, they couldn't because they were all new writers. So Dennis, Dennis's character changed a great deal. That was the most daunting thing for me. And were you able to put any feedback into that? Were you able to tell them these things that you didn't feel uh, as though it fit to the no. character? When Harry Kershaw ran the show, he said 
If any of you have any ideas or you want to talk about it, come and see me. So you could always go and talk to Harry as producer. But this time, because it had got so big, and, and Phil Collinson's office was at the other side of the, the building, you, you know, you hardly ever saw him, um, you didn't have the same relationship. It, it, the show had got so big, really. I mean, when it started, there was the 13 of us who were the permanent cast, the three or four directors and the producer. That was it. Oh, and of course, the camera crew, which you, you got very friendly with. But the creative team was a very, very small team. But now the creative team was huge. And the building was huge. They built this new building. And everybody was down miles of corridors. You never, they're all in their separate offices. You never, you never really saw anybody, you know. But nonetheless, you got to work with you know, your friends again, which was fantastic yes, in that sense. Yes, and, yes. And, and you were in it for a few, in it for three or four years, weren't you? Yes, maybe, maybe, maybe three or four years. And, and then the producer called Stuart Blackburn came in. He got rid of me. Uh, yes, he, yes he, uh, he, he was the one who, who got rid of me. Well, I would have been happy to stay had, had, you know, had they taken up my contract, but I... When it came to the end of my three-year... Oh, it was three years I was in it. When it came to the end of my three-year contract, which was given to me by Phil Collinson, then it, the contract wasn't renewed. So that, that was the end of the I, 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 I'm a Coronation Street fan and I watched you throughout that period and I thought you were fantastic. It was fun, it was really oh, good to have you. it was really good to have that connection with the early years again. Yeah, and and yeah. to build you know to your relationship with um with with with, with Rita and Dennis and Rita yeah. I thought it was really good. I, I personally I think they should have carried it on. I think it was uh, it was silly to get rid of you really, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved Dennis's relationship with Norris. And Malcolm was a very, he's a very good actor indeed. And he was a great pleasure to work with him too. So working with Barbara and working with, with, with Malcolm, that, 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 that was a very good time, yes. There have been other people who have come back, of course. I think Kenneth Cope came back for a period of time. and his, oh, yeah, his, Ken. His character yeah, very, was killed off. Fond of Ken. Yeah. His, his character was killed off as well, <laughs> eventually. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his wife, Rennie Lister, you know. Rennie was in the show for a time. This was our little gang. Christine Hargreaves, Rennie Lister, Kenneth Cope. And me, that was our little gang. <laughs> and Kenneth Cope, I mean, you, you watch programmes on that TV channel, Talking Pictures, he's never off it. He's on just about every programme. Oh, I just watched <laughs> yesterday one of the carry-ons. And he's hysterically funny in it. I, I've watched it several times. He's, he's always a great pleasure. He, yeah. he is indeed fantastic. So Coronation Street, sixty years. I know that you know people come and go, yes. producers come and go. At the end of the day, Coronation Street isn't just about one person. It's a, it's a, it's an institution in its own right, isn't it? Really, it's a phenomenon. It's an absolute phenomenon. And yes. it, it is amazing, isn't it? That you know that it's go, been going for so long, and it looks as though it'll carry on. Yeah, of course. I don't ever see it ending. And one of the proudest things that I have is the, my Guinness World Record. You know for the, the gap of 43 years. It's the longest gap of any actor in any show in, on television. It's 43 years, and that's framed on my wall here. <laughs> Fabulous. So what are you up to now? But you've been doing quite a lot of work up to this point. You're still working. You're still doing something. I, ha I haven't stopped working. I work quite a bit for Bill Kenwright, 
this is all theatre work, and he he does tours of plays, you know. So I, for the last two, maybe three years, I've been touring in plays around around the country. I've been. Because, I mean, all theatres are shut anyway, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm glad I'm an actor. I always wanted, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be an actor. I didn't know how to go about it, but eventually I found out, by, you know, by going to RADA. And think, but I'm, I'm glad I'm in this world, and I have lifelong friends. I've made lifelong friends who I still see. And um, it, it's it's a wonderful world to be in. Yes. And, and having been part of Coronation Street at the very beginning, very beginning, you're you're very much part of history as well, aren't you? When I was at drama school, I was very fond of one of the teachers. He was he was a he was a lovely actor. When Prince Charles married Diana, <laughs> it was a very hot summer, and I was in a play in the West End at the time. And uh, on, the, on the evening that Charles married Diana, I was in the theatre, and I got home to my flat. And as I got into the kitchen, the telephone was ringing, and it was this teacher from RADA. And he said, they have just repeated on television the first episode of Coronation Street. He said... You gave a genius performance, which I thought was flattering enough. He said, but do you realize that you are now part of history? And I thought that was a great thing to say. And I'm very proud of that. Yes, I was in episode one and I am I'm part of television history. Yes. Philip Ryori, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> thank you. You're listening to Distinct Nostalgia, home to some incredible interviews with stars from all your favourite soaps. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not head over to distinctnostalgia.com for a treasure trove of programmes just like this. Lisa Williamson of Hollyoaks fame talks about life on the programme. So we all got to know each other quite well. If you were chatting to some of the writers about something you've been getting up to, they would sort of write that in. So you started realising that some of your personality traits would come into the show. I got the script and I thought, what have I been up to? I got pregnant. I had the child adopted. It was, you know, when you think, wow, the writers have really gone to town for me today. You know, it's, it was great. Fantastic. Andrew Linford and Mark Homer reflect on sharing their first kiss on EastEnders in the 1990s. When the, the Blackpool episode came out, front page of the tabloids, it was like, get this scum off our TV and things like that. Just horrendous stuff. It, it was kind of the start of, of, of a big thing, really, and we're privileged to be involved in, in storylines like that, I really am. And Nick Cochran discusses his life on the street as we continue our celebration of Corrie at 60. They were just brilliant with us, you know, because we were a couple of little sh who've fortunately found the way into the TV's biggest show without really knowing what they're doing. That's bottom line, that's where me and Simon were at that point. Myself and Simon are old school people. We were brought up properly, mate, and, and so there was a lot of respect then, more than there is now. These programmes and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening and bye for now. 
Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.